Let's bow for a moment of prayer. Father, thank you for today. Lord, today is a great day. It's a great day, Lord, because you've brought us through this day. And you've allowed us to live for the glory of your kingdom. Tonight, Lord, as we gather together, our prayer is that the word of God would instruct us in the way that we should go. That we might understand uh, the beauty of who you are, the splendor and majesty of our great king, how you work in the lives of people. That, Father, this man, Job, has become the great example for all of us. And as we learn more about this man and how he lived and how he responded to disaster, we can grow so much. Our prayer is that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and exemplify you wherever we go, whoever we talk to, that we might put you on display. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2. You would think that after all that Job has been through, enough would be enough. But for Job, it wasn't. It really was just the beginning. Just the beginning of, of what Satan was going to do, what Satan wanted to do to destroy his life that he might defame the true and living God. But the affliction that is about to come upon him is an affliction that none of us can really truly relate to. It goes way beyond anything we can ever imagine in this life. People have tried to describe the affliction for us, but none of us really knows. And I think that's probably best because like Paul's thorn in the flesh, we don't know what that was. And so like the boils on... on uh, Job's life, we're not sure exactly what they were or how quickly they came upon him, but we know that he suffered greatly because of them. But Satan is vicious, and he wants to destroy Job's life. Now, between chapter 1 and chapter 2, we don't know how much time there was. We don't know exactly what took place. We know that it's silent about Job's life, but we presume that, that he, he buried his ten children. And we also presume that those nights that he was laying with his wife, there would be much and many tears shed. And maybe in the, in the loneliness of the night, she would cry out, and he would have to console his wife. We do not know, the Bible does not say. But you can imagine the turmoil upon Job's wife. They were her children too. She lost 10 children as well. And that was more devastating to them than the material loss uh, that, that was something they could eventually replace, maybe not as rapidly as maybe they would think they could, but they could eventually replace those things. But the children, they were irreplaceable, and so the loss upon both of them would be severe. And so you would think that as they sat there at night trying to ask and answer the question, what happened? Why? What did we do? Did we do anything? What is God doing? And they would lay there in the silence of the night with no answers. And little did Job know that he would never receive an answer. He would never receive an answer to the why question. He would just receive an answer as to who. And that would be the Lord God of the universe. But he would never receive the answer why. Even though he would lay there at night thinking what has happened. He had no idea what was coming next. He couldn't even begin to imagine that something would happen to him physically. 
And so this is the extent of Job's affliction. Let me read to you the narrative, and then we'll discuss it together. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept diversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great." I have eight points I want to cover with you this evening. They're going to be brief. They're going to be long. But eight points that take us through chapter 2. The first one is the presentation before the Lord. Like there was in chapter 1, there was an accounting. There was a time in when the sons of God had to present themselves before the throne of God. And so this is important because holy angels receive their marching orders. We know from the book of Hebrews, the first chapter, the 13th and 14th verse, that angels, holy angels, are ministering spirits. And they're sent forth to minister to people like you and me. And that's a great thing. We also know from Matthew's gospel that the eyes of the holy angels are always upon the Lord. Because once the Lord shows concern for anything, they are immediately dispatched to take care of of his own. But all the unholy angels are accountable too. They have to report to God. And so 
in their reporting, they have to come and realize that they are subject to the sovereign king of the universe. Satan must just absolutely hate this. That he has to go and present himself to God and be accountable to the holy God of the universe. But he is accountable to the Lord. And he goes about the earth. Because Joe, uh, uh, Satan is not omniscient. There's a reason he roams around. Because he can't read your mind. He doesn't know what you're going to do until he sees you do it. See? And unless one of his minions tells him about your behavior and your activity. He can't accuse you because he is our accuser, right? Before the throne of God day and night, Revelation 12, verse number 10. He can't accuse you unless he knows what you're doing. And therefore, he must see what you're doing or someone must tell him what you're you're doing because he's not omniscient. That's why he goes throughout the earth roaming, looking, watching. And so there is this presentation before the Lord. Next comes the proposal from the Lord. The Lord offers up Job once again. He asks two questions. Where have you been? What have you been What have you been doing? And Satan tells him, I've been roaming around. Now, isn't, the Lord's not looking for information, okay? The Lord knows what he's doing. But he's getting Satan to admit out loud exactly what he's doing. So everyone knows that Satan is accountable to the holy God of the universe. And then he offers up Job again. Have you considered my servant Job? Again, he's called Job's servant. This is the second time Job is called God's servant. Three times in two chapters, it says that he is a blameless man, he's an upright man, he's a God-fearing man, and he turns away from evil. Three times in two chapters, twice by God himself. That's God's assessment of Job. This is how God describes Job to Satan. And then he says, he's held fast his integrity. In other words, this is my servant. And my servant who serves me is a man who is a special servant because there's no one like him on the earth. He is a spiritual servant because he's perfect, upright, and fearing God. He is a separate servant because he shuns evil. And he is a strong servant because he holds fast his integrity. Job was a strong man. Job was not a soft man. We live in a society where where, where men are becoming more and more soft. Squishy. That's a good word for it. Where are the strong men? Where are the men that are resilient, steadfast? That's why uh, James says, you've heard of the endurance of Job. Someone who's able to bear up under all the pressure. Where are the men who can bear up under pressure? Why do we have so many men who crumble under the pressure, who can't stand against hard times? Job could stand against the hardest of times, having lost everything. And Job has no idea 
about what's taking place in heaven. We do. God is so gracious to us to write this down. And so we're able to understand exactly what takes place in heaven, this conversation between God and Satan. Job will never know this. doesn't know this until he dies and goes to heaven and he finds out these things. But while on earth, he does not know anything about the conversation between God and Satan. He has no idea what happened and why he lost all, all of his children. He knows how it happened. doesn't know why it happened. doesn't know why he lost all of his livestock, all of his servants except for three, the ones who would come back and report to him, hey, this is what took place, or four. And so he doesn't have the answer to the why question. But you see, he is still holding fast his integrity. You know, the Marines are looking for a few good men, but the master is looking for godly men. The Lord's not looking for good men because there's none good, right? But he does look for godly men. That's why 2 Chronicles tells us that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, looking to strengthen the hearts of those who are fully committed to him. The Lord wants to strengthen your heart. He wants to infuse you with his strength that you might be able to stand strong against the wiles of the devil. Stand strong against all the, the heartache you might face. Job is that kind of man. The character of Job is, is crucial. Why? Because a holy character is the key to handling any crisis. Please mark that down. A holy character is the key to handling any crisis. An unholy character can't handle the crisis. But a holy character can. And Job was able to endure because of his commitment to his God. And with all the information we have, with the scriptures in our hands, and the opportunity that we have where the Spirit of God lives within us, we of all people, more so than Job, should be totally committed to the Lord God of Israel and follow him. So you move from the presentation before the Lord to the proposal from the Lord to the plans of Satan. It's a plan. Satan never admits he lost. He's too arrogant to do that. He never says, you know, I tried and I lost. Satan, right, was defeated by a mere mortal man. Job won, Satan zero. He was beaten by a mere mortal man. He thought for sure that Job would curse God to his face. He thought for sure that if he lost everything materially, everything financially, all his possessions, he would be so angry that he would curse God. But you see, Job is not a material man. He's a spiritual man, right? He's not about possessions. He's about walking with God. And Satan doesn't understand that. But he never admits, you know, I tried, didn't work. Let me try this. No, he's too arrogant to do that. Too much pride. So he guarantees God that if I do this skin for skin, if I can touch his flesh, if I can touch his bones, He'll curse you. That's 
Satan's plan. He wants to afflict Job. He wants to hurt Job. He is a cruel individual. And he is certain that if he does so, that Job will curse God. So you move from the plan of Satan to the prohibition from God. This is so good. Again, verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your power. He's yours. Only spare his life. You cannot kill him. Wow. You know what that tells me? That whatever happens to you is controlled by God. You know, remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10? You know it well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Remember that? None of you faces a parasmos, a a temptation or a trial that's uncommon to man. Did you get that? You're going to face a temptation, whatever it may be in your life, that's extremely common to human beings, to everybody else. So that prohibits you from saying, you know what? No one knows the trouble I've seen. No one knows my problems. No one's been in my shoes. Walk in my shoes for a day. See what I have to face every day. Oh, no. No, no. There is no temptation taking you such as is common to man. And then he says, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. God is so faithful, he will not let anything come your way that you can't handle through his power. Nothing. So when you think about Job, and God offers up Job to Satan, he says you can do anything you want to him, but you must spare his life. You can't take his life. God knows what Job can handle. God knows how Job's going to be afflicted because God is omniscient. God knows what Satan's going to do. And yet he's not going to allow anything to happen to Job that Job is not able to handle that the power of the true and living God. My friends, that's good news for you and me. Because there's nothing too hard that you can't handle it. You should not be crumbling under the pressures and hardships and disasters of life. Why? Because God's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. He'll give you the strength, he says. <clears throat> he'll, 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 but with the temptation, it will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. There's an escape route that allows you to endure the temptation, that allows you to endure the trial, that you might come out the other end shining like gold for the glory of your God. But God puts a prohibition on Satan. He tells them that there are certain things you can do, but there are certain things you cannot do. Now remember this, God is not interested in pampering you physically, but perfecting you spiritually. For the purpose of his glory. Please remember that. God is not in the business of pampering you physically. But perfecting you spiritually 
for the purpose of his glory. So whatever trial comes your way, that's a direction God's moving you. That's what God wants to do in your life. He wants to perfect you spiritually because he wants to be glorified in and through your life. Now imagine your name in this text. You can do anything to Lance that you want. You just can't kill him. You can do anything to Roger that you want, but you just can't kill him. You can do anything to Don that you want, but you just can't kill him. Imagine that. If that conversation was going on in heaven, we'd never know. Just like Job never knew. But it tells us that God is in complete control of everything, even the trials that come your way, even the disasters that come your way. All the pain that you experience emotionally, physically, mentally, financially, all those things. Listen, this recession that we're in, this inflation that we experience, doesn't take God by surprise, right? You're feeling the pain at the pump. You're feeling the pain at the grocery store, right? Your taxes are going up. So are mine. Everything is. But God's not going to allow anything to happen to us that we can't handle through his power, through his spirit, that we might glorify his name. God's going to do that. Why? Because he has set, Acts 17, 26, the habitation and boundaries of every man. In other words, God has set your house and the boundaries surrounding your house of every one of you. He's put you in a particular place. So that no matter what it is you face in that particular place, he'll give you the strength to handle these things. He put Job in the land of us that he might experience these things from Satan and that he might be an example for you and me to understand how to handle them. You know, Job had no idea things were going to get worse. He's probably thinking, man, how bad could things possibly be? I've lost everything. I've got nothing left, which leads you to the pain. This is point number five in the affliction. The presentation before the Lord, the proposal from the Lord, the plans of Satan, the prohibition from God, and the pain in the affliction. Satan wasted no time. As soon as he got permission, he was gone. And I don't know how this happened. It says, it says, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now, I don't know if it happened while he's in bed and he wakes up and he's got a spot on his back and on his, on his side and he says, honey, do you see this? What do you think this is? And she's like, I don't know. And that throughout the day, they begin to increase. And as they begin to increase, they begin to spread throughout the day. So maybe now he's got them on his legs and on his stomach and on his back, and he's thinking, what's going on? What is this? And she says, I don't know. And he goes to bed, wakes up, and now they're even worse. And now there are more of them. Now they're from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Now think about that. You can't sit without pain. You can't lay down without pain. You can't walk without pain. You can't even hang from a tree without pain. There's absolutely no place you can go 
to relieve yourself from the pain that you're experiencing. And that's why he sits in the ash heap. To somehow get some kind of relief from all of these sores that are on his body. Or maybe not the relief, but to redirect the pain that he's experiencing. You ever ever done that? You have a pain in one part of your body, and now you want to redirect it because that pain is too unbearable to bear. So let's do something else to hurt the other side of my body so I can redirect my pain. Well, Job can't do that because his whole body's in pain. He can't redirect the pain anywhere because there's nothing he can do because every part of his being is in pain. Think about this. If you're going to go through the text, you're going to realize that he has all these inflamed sores on his body, Job 2, verse number 7. With that comes persistent itching. That's why he takes the potsherd and scrapes himself. In the scraping of the boils, okay, two things happen. One, he wants to relieve some pain. He wants to remove the pus that's there. At the same time, make himself more presentable to those who might see him. Because his whole body becomes disfigured. That's why when his friends came to see him, the text says they didn't recognize him. Why? Because of the swelling of his face, his body, he was disfigured. So you read on and you realize that in Job 2, verse number 12, there's disfiguration of his facial skin. In chapter 3, verse number 24, there's the loss of appetite. Chapter 3, verse number 25, there are fears and depression. In chapter 7, verse number 5, there are sores that burst open, scab over, crack, ooze with pus. Chapter 7, verse number 5, again, worms that form in the sores themselves. Chapter 9, verse number 18, he has difficulty in breathing. Chapter 16, he has a darkening of the eyelids. Chapter 19, foul breath. Chapter 19 again, verse number 20, loss of weight. Chapter 30, verse number 27, excruciating continual pain. Chapter 30, verse number 30, a high fever with chills and discoloring of skin as well as anxiety and diarrhea. That's Job. None of us have ever been there, thank God. But by the time you get to chapter 30, Many, many days have passed. Many weeks have passed. He said to bear up under this continually without ever knowing why. You think you got it bad? You think your life's in turmoil? Oh, no. Just read about Job. Just bury your face in the book of Job for the next 60 days. Then you'll realize my problems are nothing compared to Job's problems. And yet Job was a God-fearing, upright man who turned away from evil and lived for the glory of his God. He maintained his integrity. He is the personification of misery. There's no one in Scripture that personifies misery more so than Job. He was rejected and isolated. That's why he went to the ash heap. Warren Wiersbe talks about it this way in his commentary. He says, there the city garbage was deposited and burned, and there the city's rejects lived, begging alms from whomever passed by. At the ash heap, dogs fought over something to eat. 
and the city's dung was brought and burned. The city's leading citizen was now living in abject poverty and shame. All that he humanly had left were his wife and three friends, and even they turned against him. Again, measure your life against this environment. And you begin to realize what we're facing is nothing compared to what Job faces. Which leads us to our our next point, and that is the, the pessimism of his wife. The pessimism of his wife. Truly pessimistic she is. This is the only thing she says and the only time she appears in the entire book. This is it. This is all she says. None of it's like, you know, honey, what can I do for you? Can, can I sit with you? Can I get you something? Is there something I can do? I wish I could. No, nothing like that. Instead, she says, then his wife said to him, okay, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Every man needs a wife like that. I mean, curse God and die. What are you doing? Now remember, and we can be really hard on Job's wife, right? But remember, she lost everything as well. But on top of that, she loses to some degree, the strength of her life, her husband, the pillar of her life, the one who's always there to walk her through the pain that she's experiencing, the one that's always been there to offer up sacrifices on behalf of the children, the one that is the, the greatest man on the earth, but by the testimony of chapter 1, in the east. But now all that greatness is gone. All that they have is gone. All the children she bore, she nursed as they grew. She carried in her body for nine months. They're all gone. So her pain is great. As great as Job's, except she doesn't have the physical pain that Job has. So maybe she says it to relieve herself of misery. You can relieve yourself of misery And as you do, you're going to relieve me of my misery because you're going to be gone. And after all, I can probably marry somebody else. I can probably have more kids. I don't know what she's thinking. The Bible doesn't tell us. But this is the only time she's mentioned and the only thing she says. And Job, all right, leadership at its apex. Leadership at its best. He indicts her, and then he instructs her. And the way that he indicts her, he says, you speak as the foolish women speak. He doesn't say you're a fool. But you're speaking like the foolish women speak, the people who don't believe there is a God. You're you're speaking to me as if God doesn't exist, but he does because you want me to curse him and die. What you're saying is, is... is not wise. So he instructs her. He simply says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. 
Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Wow. That's leadership. I don't know what kind of definition you have of leadership. I don't know what books you read on leadership. But that's leadership. Leading through and in adversity. Leading so much that you're able to instruct your wife into the importance and priority of God over everything. What a man of God. He could have lashed out at her. He could have screamed at her. And who would have blamed him, right? But that's not what he did. He indicted her and then he instructed her in the ways of God. Leadership at its best, when everything is crumbling around you, what do you do as a man in your family? Do you lead your wife into the ways of God? Do you lead your children into the ways of God? Do you move them through the crisis and show them God is in charge? Shall we accept prosperity but never accept adversity? Can we actually live that way? No. He instructs her in the providence of God. He instructs her in the, in the sovereignty of God. He instructs her, instructs her in how it is God is at work in their life, even though there's pain that's there. This is leadership at its highest level. You can't ask for a better leader than this. So gentlemen, measure your life against Job's life. He becomes the example. He becomes the standard by which you lead your wife and your children. No matter how bad things may be for you, they're not as bad as they were for Job. And yet, he kept a biblical perspective through it all. It's an amazing testimony to the grace of God. And it's like, that's why we can tell you that there's no temptation taking you but such as coming to man. But that God will provide a way of escape. God knows what you can take. He knows what you can handle. He knows that we are but dust. We're very fragile beings. He knows that. And he knows his name is at stake. He knows that his glory is going to be put on display through Job's life, like it is through your life. God knows that. And so God wants to shine through, clear and bright. He does with Job. Matthew Henry says, If Satan leaves anything that he has permission to take away, It is with a design of mischief. Remember, he could take anything away he wanted from Job, but he left his wife. Right? Because it was his design for mischief. He was going to use her to be his greatest temptation. More about that in a minute. But he's going to use his wife as his greatest temptation. Like it was in the beginning, with Adam and with Eve. And so there's this great temptation that comes his way through the person that's supposed to be your greatest comforter, your greatest lover, your greatest greatest friend. 
tempts you and says, curse God and die. But Job is so committed to turning away from evil, he turns away from the temptation. He shuns evil and says, shall we accept only certain things from God and not others? Or do we accept everything as from God? Which leads us to the presence of his friends. His three friends show up. They come. They come from a distance. How long did it take them to get there? Bob didn't tell us. They're with Job for seven days, right? Seven days. Did, did it take them a day to get there? They came from different areas, but they were his friends. Maybe it just took them a day to get there. Maybe it took them two days to get there. And then when they see him, they see he's in great pain, the text says. Great pain. Tremendous pain. And it says that they didn't even recognize him when they saw him. I mean, think about that. I, I've been to the hospital where people have been in car accidents, and their, their, their bodies and heads are so swollen, you can't recognize the person that you knew before the accident because they're in such bad shape. Well, Job's face began to swell. His body began to swell. There were oozing sores all over his body. And they didn't even recognize him. So they came. And they came with the purpose of comforting Job. And that's a good thing. And for seven days, they sat in silence. I would like to think they sat in silence because, because they wanted just to be there for him. I, I, I think they were chomping at the bit to say something. And we'll see that as we go through the rest of the book. They, they, they have to say something. You know, sometimes when people are suffering, it's just good just to sit there and not say anything. Just to hold their hand. Just to put your arm around them. To weep with those who, who weep. That's always a great thing to do. You don't have to always say something. As you go through the text of the book of Job, we're going to show you what not to say, how not to say it, and what you should say. Because these men, although they say truthful things, things that are really true, they misapply them to Job. And they become, as the Bible says, his miserable comforter. So much so that God makes them beg for forgiveness at the end. God makes them ask for forgiveness because they were wrong. But they came and they sat and they listened and watched, thinking about what they would say. Now, the belief was if you suffered in those days, you suffered because you were a great sinner. And so they're thinking, what sin did Job commit that made him lose everything that he has and for this affliction to come upon his life. He must have really did something really bad. And maybe you're thinking about maybe the bad things he did because they get him to try to confess that, but there is nothing he does because God says there's nothing he did wrong. He says you, you incited him without cause. In other words, there was nothing that he did that would cause this to happen to him. You just did it because that's what you wanted to do, Satan. There's nothing that Job did that caused this. That's chapter 2. 
So point number eight are the principles. What do we take away from this? Let me give you three of them. Three principles that will help guide you through this. First one is be advised. Second one is be wise. And the third one is be mesmerized. Number one, be wise. Be wise about suffering and trials. We need to be wise about them. Because trials are, listen, ever inevitable, never enjoyable, however, always purposeful and profitable. Did you get that? They are ever inevitable, never enjoyable, however, always purposeful and profitable. Because God's in charge. Be wise about suffering and trials. The Bible tells us very easily in Job 5, verse number 7, man is born under trouble lest sparks fly upwards. Job 14, verse number 1, man is short-lived and full of trouble. Peter says, if necessary, and obviously you have these trials because they must be necessary for you, you suffer various trials. James says in James 1, consider all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Not if you fall into them, but when you do. Because they are ever inevitable. You're going to face them. And they come in different shapes and different sizes and in different degrees. But they're always going to come. That's why they are ever inevitable, but they're never enjoyable. Nobody wants a trial. Nobody wants a test. You go to school and you, you, you know you mark on your, on your calendar when the tests are going to be. But sometimes the teacher gives you a pop quiz or a pop test and you, you start to sweat profusely and you get all nervous and you don't know what to do. Why? Because no one likes tests. No one likes exams. But when they come in the spiritual realm, they're difficult. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says we are afflicted in every way. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are struck down. But he never gave up. He endured. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not think it strange or don't be surprised at this fiery ordeal that's come upon you. Not just an ordeal. It is a fiery ordeal. And you should never be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes. But we are. That's because we're not wise concerning suffering and trials. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus for certain, they will suffer persecution. Christ said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. So realize that trials are ever inevitable, never enjoyable, however, always profitable and purposeful. Because God's behind them. He doesn't tempt you to do evil. Not at all. But the Bible says, in the book of James, and you know this well, James chapter 1 makes it very clear. 
Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, the proving of your faith, right? So when the trial comes, it's going to prove the genuineness of your faith. It's going to produce endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect, that you may be complete, lacking nothing. In other words, the reason the trial is there is because you're lacking something. But when the trial comes, it's going to fill in that which you're lacking. That's why you consider it all joy, because there's something in your life that's lacking. Now think about this. What could possibly be lacking in Job's life? He's, he's upright. He's blameless. He turns away from evil. He's God-fearing, right? And he's maintained his integrity when he lost everything. What could possibly be lacking in Job's life? But you don't find that out to the end. When he says, I've heard of you with the hearing of my ears, but now, for the first time, I've seen you. He needed to see God in all of his splendor and glory and majesty. And so God was going to make sure all that took place in this man's life, that he might be able to experience the beauty of the Lord. So, Principle number one, be wise about suffering and trials. Number two, I'm sorry, that's be advised. Number two is be wise about Satan's tactics. I guess I got my words mixed up, I'm sorry. Be advised about suffering and trials and be wise about Satan's tactics. You need to be wise about this. Why? Once you're advised about trials, be wise about Satan's tactics. Because listen carefully, Satan will use people that are closest to you to tempt you, to move you. Remember Matthew chapter 16? Christ had just got done speaking about that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. And all the disciples were excited about that. They're up in Caesarea, Philippi, up at the very northern part of the, of the land of Israel, at the base of Mount Hermon. And Jesus begins to foretell his death, how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. Peter, the leader of the twelve, the one that God would use in a, in a mighty way in the book of Acts. Peter hears about the church being built and how the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Right? And he realized that and this is great. And then Jesus foretells his death, how he's going to suffer, how he's going to die and rise again. And Peter said, no, 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 you got it all wrong. You don't understand your mission. You don't know what you're here for. You got it wrong. And Christ says, you're being used by Satan to distract me from my mission. As Job's wife was used by Satan to deter him from glorifying God, as Peter was used by Satan to deter Christ from the ultimate mission of going to the cross and dying for the sins of man, 
so too God will use your family members and those closest to you to move you away from God's mission and purpose for your life. You must be wise to Satan's tactics because he has a myriad of them. It doesn't mean your wife tonight is going to tempt you to turn your back on God. I'm not saying that. But she might. Don't know your wife, you know? But ladies, maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your grandparents. Maybe it's the guy you admire most at work or in your church. And you must think things through biblically. What does the Bible say? What does God want me to do? And be able to differentiate between someone's logical reasoning versus theological reasoning. So you think theologically and not logically. Think divinely and not humanly because you want to follow God. Principle number one, be advised about suffering and trials. Number two, be wise about Satan's tactics. Number three, be mesmerized by God's sovereign timing. Be mesmerized. Be captivated. Be enthralled with the fact that God's timing is always perfect. Look at Job's life. The timing. The relentless timing of the disasters. And then the timing on the heels of that coming and being afflicted with boils and from the top of his head to the bottom of his soul. This was the perfect storm for a man to turn his back on God. But it was in the God's timetable. That's why Job would say later in, in his, his book, he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He says, he is unique who can turn him and what his soul desires that he does, he performs what is appointed for me. And many such degrees are with him. Solomon, who maybe was the author of Job, we don't know that, says in Ecclesiastes 7, number thir- chapter 7, verse number 13, Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man will not discover anything that will come after him. In other words, Solomon says, in the day of, in the day of prosperity, God made that one. In the day of adversity, consider something. God made them both. But the day of adversity comes so you'll never be in control of tomorrow. The day of adversity comes so you'll never know what's going to happen tomorrow. God wants you to trust him. He wants you to believe him. It's the perfect timing for the trial. How many times have you heard us say, you know, I can't. This is not the right time. I've had enough. It's got to stop. No. It's in the perfect timing of a sovereign God who has your best interest at heart because that's going to give him the greatest glory. It's all about the praise and honor of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What you're going through is not about you. 
It's about what God's going to do in and through you so that he will be ultimately glorified. William Cooper, who was a poet and a hymn writer, who, by the way, attempted suicide three times and failed all three times. Talk about the timing of God. I mean, how bad do you have to be to commit suicide three times and fail all three times? The man's a failure, right? He wrote 68 hymns. One of those hymns is entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And he expresses the mindset of believers. Listen to what he says. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. Our God moves in mysterious ways. But he always moves for your good and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this evening. As brief as it is, we are grateful for the word of the Lord. And our prayer, Father, is that we would look at this man, Job, and realize we have a long way to go when it comes to responding to adversity and trials the way he responded. But Lord, it's not impossible because your spirit has infused us. You live within us. Our prayer, Father, is that we would respond to adversity, trials, hardship, difficulty, in whatever form they may come in a way that puts you on display for your glory until you come again as you most surely will. In Jesus' name, amen.